This is the Constructionist Podcast, where we take ancient stories, the person of Jesus, current events and topics, and help you construct a new Christian worldview that's relevant and loving to those around you. I'm your host, Kevin Bates. I'm a semiotician and community builder looking at the signs of the times to build a better future together. You are tuned into the Constructionist Podcast, and tonight we're continuing our series on the book of Mark. In The Constructionist, we encourage a worldview that is built on the principles of Christ. And in this episode, we will be examining the life of Christ through a clear and honest lens. By doing so, we hope to offer insights and perspectives that will help you in your journey towards a greater understanding of love and compassion for yourself and others. We want to assure you that in tonight's episode through the Book of Mark, we will not be fabricating anything as many have done. Any information or any ideas are based on our research, and if we're going to make guesses, we're going to tell you that they're guesses. If they're based on research, we're going to tell you where you can find that research that we've done. Our goal is to provide an honest and authentic perspective in our examination, kind of like a thinking space, we call it around here. We're just providing and presenting ideas and thoughts, and tonight we're making our best attempt to explain very practical theologies to live by. So if you enjoy the Constructionist podcast and want to support us financially, please follow the link in the chat or the show notes on the social media platform you're listening to and visit our give page at resonatelife.org. You can support us through our Patreon page at The Constructionist. So go to patreon.com and go The Constructionist and you will find the Patreon page that you can support us by. Your support will enable us to continue providing high quality content like this. But even more importantly, we want to hear from you, engage with you. We believe that through our interactions and discussions with listeners like you, we can continue to learn and to grow together. We value your feedback, your questions, and your ideas. And we're excited to build a community around our shared exploration of what we call a communal hermeneutic. So please don't hesitate to reach out. We preview all of your questions before they go up onto the um, onto the social media platform, just so you know that they're safe and previewed, and then we'll answer them as they come in, either live as we are podcasting or throughout the week, whenever you listen to it, we will respond. So Sharia and Jake, thanks for joining us tonight. We're really glad we are in Mark chapter 11. That's where we ended and starting this week. And so why don't we get into it? Sharia, you want to read the beginning part of Mark chapter 11 for us. Can we step yeah. back for one moment, Kevin? I think something yes. that you said earlier about that we're not making guesses and we're doing oh. the best that we can. So you should tell the story of Rick Warren this week, a couple of days ago. Yes. So Rick Warren, a former pastor, I, he has stepped down from that position and he's doing other things now. Um, I know that he's uh, pretty involved at Saddleback Christian, uh, Saddleback Church down in California. I highly respected individual, have nothing against him whatsoever. Actually, I followed him and learned from his stuff for a very long time. The thing that I appreciate about Rick Warren is that he gave the gospel and taught in a very practical, missional way. He is an example of an evangelical pastor that has been 
involved in a theology and also a system, a denomination that preached, that taught, made him subscribe to, sign off on very strict theologies that in the conclusion of those theologies were very oppressive to women. Women were not allowed through the history of the Southern Baptist movement, were not allowed to serve in different capacities within the church, one of those being the pulpit ministry, being a senior pastor. So this last week, respectably, um, respectfully and honorably, he got on Twitter and actually apologized for basically teaching and believing and supporting a doctrine of complementarianism, that's what we call in the theological world, and not allowing or not promoting, encouraging women in certain roles in the church. So he apologized. And I think that's where we need to be when it comes to these subjects, where we have theologies that honestly come from traditions, come from systems, come from the church, which is full of people, which are fallible. Um, honestly, I don't think, you know, over the years that he probably thought he was doing any harm. He probably thought he was doing the right thing. But what we know about being right and trying to push our right is it blinds us from what the Bible actually says. That's what we're doing at the Constructionists is we try to take the Bible for what it says and then learn from actually where did our traditions come from? Maybe we need to deconstruct some things. And if we're going to deconstruct some things, we need to construct some, construct some things forward. So when it comes to the theology of women's roles or women um, as human beings, like how are they placed in the, quote, created order of things, things like that, that we've spoken for years, that we've promoted and have basically written in stone in some of our movements, um, he apologized for that and broke that down, why he doesn't believe that anymore, how he's done his own research, how he's looked at the Greek, the context, the day, looking at you know what was actually going on 2,000 years ago and why was it written that way. That's very honorable. And I thought it was awesome that he got up and got on Twitter and apologized. You know, when somebody like that, somebody that famous, somebody that's written and publicized that many times and has sold that many books and is that popular of a person, you know, he puts his, he puts his royalties at risk. He puts his sales mm -hmm. at risk. He puts his income at risk when he's doing that. And I just thought, you know what? We need more people like this to get up and apologize, to put their paychecks at risk, to not worry about anymore the security of what, you know, their their book sales or their podcasts are going to do and just get really honest because the church needs to change. And we've been promoting theologies, promoting systems of operation that really have just failed us. Why? Because they're not true. There's a lot of things that we've promoted in the church that just simply are not true, whether it comes to creation narratives, whether it becomes the, whether it be the Old Testament and how it's structured, the inerrancy of scripture. That's not even a true doctrine. When you think about how the New Testament structured, women's roles in the church, all of the things that we've promoted complement, it's all, it's all a bunch of, I would say, just not, they're just not true. And 
if we're if we realize that we're not speaking the truth we need to apologize for that change things and then put in instead of a system of oppression instead of a system of oh hey now we're equal we need to put in a system of equity where we encourage and lift up than that which we oppressed and so my hope is for the future of the church <clears throat> that people would follow rick warren in his apologies um, that we would have our own apologies and of the things that we fell short in and we would be able to build a build a church that actually looks like the kingdom of god that there's no longer male or female jew or greek slave or free that we're all one in the kingdom of God. We're all unified and equal. In order to do that on, on earth, we have to put in systems of equity in order to lift up the oppressed. And so I'm looking forward after that apology. I sent that that apology te uh, text. I, I copied and pasted the link to that and sent it to uh, three ordained pastor women that I know. And I said, just check this out because you need to hear that there's good news on the horizon that if that evangelical pastor will do that i know more will follow suit so i'm excited for the future there all right is that what is that is that uh, it, was yeah. that enough said do you guys do you guys have anything yeah. else to say about that i think it gives a little more That's... context to why we we don't guess <laughs> Or we like say it, when well, we do. Or we say we are yeah. guessing. Or I, we I say we're say, specializing. I, I, yeah, I would say I guess. Um, uh, I guess a lot of things, as long as we say I'm guessing here, yeah. <laughs> and we're not building a theology around one word or one sentence. Yeah, that's the problem with um, that's the problem with complementarianism. Because they have a couple of three or four scriptures that they use. One is um, women should not have authority over men. And mm -hmm. so those scriptures, uh, like Second Timothy, um, first, uh, for, excuse me, First Timothy chapter two, that's what that is. First Timothy chapter two. That's what the main um, ones, yeah. Right, it's one of the main ones. There's other scriptures that they use, about four of them that they use to uh, build an entire structure, culture. Yeah, St well, build an entire culture, but structure a theology around. And we know that, that when you use one scripture or even just four scriptures, you need to be very careful about what um, what conclusions you can come to just based on that. So... Yeah, good stuff though. I'm excited about excited about the future of and you know, hopefully somebody that popular can have some influence on some other not so populars and and we'll see uh some things change. So let's read Mark chapter eleven. All right. Shreya, go for it. Okay. When Jesus and his followers approached Jerusalem they came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus gave two disciples a task, saying to them, Go into the village over there. As soon as you enter it, you will find tied up there a colt that no one has ridden. Um, untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, Its master needs it, and he will send it right back away. 
They went and found a colt tied to a gate outside on the street, and they untied it. Some people standing around said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? They told them just what Jesus said, and they left them alone. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes upon it, and he sat on it. Many people spread out their clothes on the road, while others spread branches cut from the fields. Those in front of him and those following were shouting, Hosanna, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. After he looked around at everything, because it was already late in the evening, he returned to Bethany with the twelve. Any initial thoughts on that? Because that's a really profound scripture. Can I just remark on how entertaining it is that they went up and untied somebody's donkey and people around are like, hey, what are you doing? And they're like, no, it's fine. We're good. <laughs> they just let them walk away need... with the donkey. Mm -hmm. Well, and a donkey back in those days was definitely and has always been a pack animal. So it's a right. means of it's a means of production for them. Right. So so it's not like that was just a nothing. Yeah. <laughs> actually took your donkey um i i want to go back to what we were saying at the end of last week um we were talking about uh the the miracle healing bartimaeus um Ooh. right going from blind to being able to see um and the purpose of miracles um and we kind of landed on that maybe at least that story is a literary device because we're moving from the disciples not understanding what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. Um, and then we have this other individual, Bartimaeus, who is able to see, contrasting the disciples not being able to see. Um, I think there's a reason that this passage comes right after that, um, because it kind of points us towards what what do we need to be seeing. Um mm. And I think this passage is showing us what the Messiah is about. About last week. <laughs> <laughs> we said a lot last week. If you've missed uh -huh. that episode, yeah, you need to go back and, and listen, possibly. One of the things that I thought about through the week after I said what I said and did what I did and unraveled <laughs> maybe a few people is there's there's nothing wrong I don't think there's anything wrong with believing in miracles in scripture or seeing them as a literary device or both. So there's, there is some hope and some, I think, I think some transformation that can happen through believing in miracles. Uh, believing in miracles has been a long tradition of the church. So lots of transformation. I think being abusive with miracles is a different, that's, that's weird. Um, but, but believing in miracles has been, and has given people a lot of, a lot of hope. Although to look at it as a literary device is important because of the context and what we're actually supposed to be seeing behind the miracle. So there's lots of things in scripture, even the divinity of Christ or the, the way, the truth, and the life, and some of these things that are said in scripture to look at them at different angles and make sure that you're seeing things in more than one perspective and weighing those perspectives 
because there could be a new illumination that you can find or something different that you can see. And that's that's really important to do with all scripture, I think, not just, you know, these passages, but honestly, I well, I think the passages like uh, uh, that Rick Warren apologized of misinterpreting. I think that's just one perspective of just looking at a very narrow view of a scripture that's the result of it is we just become very narrow in our theology so just based off of last week that's i did some thinking about that and thought wow okay so probably need to go back and say a few words about you know not to just unravel everything that you've ever believed about miracles or jesus it's just there's other considerations to take and you're right sheree i think that okay now what do we need to see now we see jesus coming into Jerusalem as the one or the way, and uh, people are recognizing that. I think, is it um, Jewish tradition, I think, that compares um, the Torah to a gemstone that has many facets? Mm -hmm. yeah. And each, each face is a different way of, of looking at and interpreting the text. Right. And it's meant right. to all be there. You don't have to pick one and say that's the truth. Isn't it four views of interpretation or five? Uh, what I'm thinking of is like in the Middle Ages, there were four, four takes on interpretation. Is mm -hmm. that what we're talking about? Yeah, I think so. I believe it's four. Four, yeah. I can't remember the name. There's different names. Yeah, the for them. literal, the historical, the mm. spiritual, and the allegorical. Yes, I think. thank you. Thank you. And sometimes we can live in the allegorical a little too far. And sometimes we can live in the, liter uh, the literal too far. Mm -hmm. uh, and the historical has a place. And I think that's why it's included. Um, and some people live in the historical a little too far as well. I just, uh, in your consideration, Sharia, what we need to see in the scripture to understand what's going on in this entry, this quote, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, you know, was kind of a, a mockery. If you think about like how Jesus was entering in on a donkey, the cloaks were underneath Jesus. So that cloak the royal garments he's sitting on royal garments and on a on a donkey riding in from the east so so we see in the scripture these two places are to the east of Jerusalem we have uh, Bethany and Bethphage where where those are from the east so he enters in from the east and we know that from the other direction, there's actually another procession coming in. Mm -hmm. So during this period of, of celebration, the, the population would swell to, you know, to a couple hundred thousand people. So you went from, you know, let's say 30,000 people to, you know, 250,000 people, let's say. Right. So you just, uh, you know, the, the population just swelled. Because Passover well, we, is coming up. I don't think the right. text specifically says that, but people are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Right, right. And yeah, the text doesn't say that here, but that's what's happening. That's what's going to happen. And, and so from the West, 
side of things, you would have another procession, and that would have been the Roman army. So Jesus comes from the east, and then the Roman army is coming from the west. So if you can imagine like this, this contradictory of, of processions, it's a contradiction where you have um, this Passover was the celebration of the overturning of the uh, Egyptian empire. And so if you can imagine every year what the Romans thought of how the Jews wanted to celebrate overthrowing empire. So, so of course, they were very present during this time as well, be just because of the stigma around the celebration. So you have this liberation, let's say liberation uh, celebration from, from Pharaoh, and, and because of the anti-empire um, or imperial-like backdrop, you would have had a huge amount of Roman presence. It wouldn't have just been a couple of, you know, police officers. It would have been just an entire brigade of army coming in. So you have Jesus coming in from one side and the army coming in from uh, the other side. So, so the procession would have been definitely um, in the Roman flair. So you have flags and horses, stallions, chariots, lots of metal, shields and swords, um, colors and lots of power, signs and placards of, you know, who the brigades were, um, mm -hmm. leaders in the front leaders in the front of every century, every centurion would have been in the front of every hundred. And that's what led in. And then now on the other side, we have Jesus on an ass sitting on cloaks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and probably this is when Pontius Pilate was entering the city as right. well, part of this mm -hmm. procession. Um, and he definitely would have been on a very nice stallion in contrast to Jesus's mm -hmm. donkey. We we have to be careful because it never says donkey. Oh, what does Colt. it say? Colt. Okay. Well, okay. So only in in Matthew and John does it say like a donkey, mm -hmm. mm. but like Luke and Mark don't indicate that. And so, is there a reason for that? I wonder. I don't know. Well, I mean, Matthew ties it back to. Um, was it David or Matthew ties it to some prophetic something in the Old Testament that has to do with a king riding a donkey or something like that, right? I, I've I'm not, making a guess. <laughs> I've, I've not dug into it that much to like go further. I, I believe that it has, has some type of prophecy or connection to the past. Mm. Which um, yeah. tends to be Matthew's focus. And so mm. we don't know what what it was it could be a horse or a donkey or a mule even uh, it just was a young animal that's never been ridden mm -hmm. okay but still point proven <laughs> that jesus is riding in and right not a war in, horse right not on a war horse the roman empire the roman uh brigade would have been coming in from this west side and that was to issue fear so the contrast is from one side we have fear, 
from the other side we have celebration we have this hope this calling out of holiness this calling out of of blessing um this is the one who comes in the name of the lord so so that is like a joy or a or a celebration mm-hmm. i think the church has spent and... too much time in the west yes Jesus's That's... procession though is also maybe a subversion Oh, definitely. Um, right. Definitely. Because like everybody would know when Rome was coming. That's that's not something that they do by surprise. It's meant to be a big deal that everybody witnesses. Um mm-hmm. and so for Jesus to be processing on his own is purposefully drawing crowd away from the empire. It's purposefully um what's the word I want? Like a contrast. Subversive. Um, yeah. Said subversive, yeah. Um, is it is it Marcus Borg who compares it to like a protest? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, he's also he's also the one that um, talks about the cloak of power and how the cloak of power is. You have you have cloaks that you know we've seen in previous scriptures um but the the cloak of power basically is like of a hierarchical power so there's hierarchy in these cloaks right so jesus is in in a metaphor as marcus borg would say is in a metaphor of riding in on the like history and hierarchy like he sits above the history and the hierarchy of of all of time and so that's the cloak of like the cloak of power it's called and they would have said they would have laid down the cloaks on the ground too mm-hmm. yeah so it was in protest to what was happening at the same time I think well, so I, th- I think that you know, Christianity in general is a protest. Like our faith is a protest to um, empire in general. Mm-hmm. So no matter no matter what, Christianity all along the way, even before all of this, it was a continual protest. The healing of people, helping them enter back into society, was a protest. Uh, feeding of the 5,000 or sharing the meals and being more of a, a benevolent type of person was a protest. So it's a, it's a protest against the acquisition of things and money and material. You go into Acts and you, you see the protest again, sell all your possessions and give to everyone that's in need. So we continue that protest in, in Acts. So the idea of Christianity in general with Christ is a protest. I, I think that's what people have a hard time with um, in the United States. Because in the United States, we think acquisition of material things and money is like power and popularity and blessing. So the more we get, the more blessed we are from God. And that's never what God has had. Like, how do I enter the kingdom of God? The rich young ruler is, you know, at, is, is asking. And then Jesus looks at him and says, sell all your stuff. 
know, and he walks away kind of bummed out. So, so we take the opposite of that in our United States culture, where we think the, the dream is to have things and to have security in materialistic ideas. Mm -hmm. Yet Jesus says, you need to protest capital. And so in capitalism, we think that's the way, the truth, and the life. But Jesus says you need to protest that capital and to give yourself away, to actually give your life away. But also that idea of power, too. I think um, it's been part of Christian thinking for a long time that we ought to be the ones in power um, because we have a superior moral code or something like that. You know, we're going to make the world a better place. Um, right. And we just compromise to whatever power demands well especially when we tie our christianity to um politic to uh democracy but when we when we tie it to uh i i forgot the word just out of my mind when um expansion when people, no no colonization uh, no, Zy uh, not Zionism. Dominion um, theology. McCarthyism? No. <laughs> You're confusing <laughs> me. When we, when we tie, yes, a world policing, yes, I get that. But when we tie our faith so closely to a governmental system that mm -hmm. seems to be working for modern time, we think that that is the answer for everyone. Like and a theocracy? So is that what you're talking about? Well, no, I'll th it's a Zion. It's a Zionist mentality where we're going to reestablish. Uh, we're going to reestablish kingdom. We're going to reestablish. No, just drop, drop it all. Uh, no, three uh, syllables. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, when we're trying to establish. Uh, power and regime in different places in different countries because we think we know what's best and then we attach our faith to that like so like so whatever that's called colonialism Missions. well yes <laughs> yeah, imperialism but imperialism with god so we have this god faith attached to it Trey, well, uh, well all Trey, i'm saying Trey, i just saying said is, missions did you hear that Kevin? yes yes <laughs> i just moved past it so, <laughs> so yeah so so christians think that with a uh right faith and a right government that that now we have the power now we've acquired more power and we need to just spread that power around But we want the power still over there too, wherever there is. Yeah, pick a place. And you know we've done that. I mean, think about the Crusades. You know, the Crusades were a very imperialistic, conquering, conquest type mentality. Change you over to Christian. Um, have this form of government, and you will be saved. Hmm. I had somebody sit in my community group in I won't give the date or the person but they said they actually said they no longer attend the church but they actually said that a certain president that got elected was now the savior of the world 
And I was just, I was just shocked when they said that. I wasn't shocked, but then I was like, I hadn't heard that in a very long time that a certain president was the savior of the world. And I, mm -hmm. I pushed back and said, I thought Jesus was the savior of the world, not a president, but it's this mixing of theology and power and empire. Um, that was the rebellion back then. I mean, you think about the way that Jesus acted and said, no, we're going we're gonna to do something contra mm -hmm. that, counter the power. Mm. Do you think there's anything to these two towns? Because they're referred to a couple of times. Why was Bethany so important? It's the house of bread, right? Yeah. No, that's Bethlehem. Oh, good. Yeah. Bethany. Yeah. yeah. Bethany is house of dates. There it is. Ah. The holy and Beth, fruit. And Beth Page. I'm yeah. I'm not sure what that one is. Any thoughts on those two towns? I mean, anything to, to pull up? It's the house of figs. Sure. Figs and dates. Oh, oh. figs and dates. Well, that just makes sense because is House of Beth is House is House of Bethany or Bethphage? One, which one's figs? Which one's dates? So Bethphage is figs. Yeah. And Bethany is House of Dates. So we came from these towns. They came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. So they came from this town, these towns, and all of a sudden now we have this huge metaphor of the fig tree. Isn't that convenient? All right, let's get into that metaphor. <laughs> Jake, do you want to read that for us? I can, I can yes. read because Jake's trying to scroll at it's the a, same time. It's all good. I oh, got okay. it. <clears throat> okay. The next day after leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. From far away, he noticed a fig tree in leaf. So he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing except leaves, since it wasn't the season for figs. So he said to it, no one will ever eat from your fruit. His disciples heard this. They came to Jerusalem after leaving, after entering the temple. He threw out those. Do you want to stop at the fig tree? Keep going. Okay. He pushed over tables used for currency exchange and the chairs of those who sold doves. He didn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He taught them, hasn't it been written, my house will be called a house for the prayer for all nations. But you've turned it into a hideout for crooks. The chief priests and legal experts heard this and tried to find a way to destroy him. They regarded him as dangerous because the whole crowd was enthralled at his teaching. When it was evening, Jesus and disciples went outside the city. Just looking up something really quick for our listeners here. Go ahead. Uh, anything to step out, stand out? It is I think the first thing that we should stumble on is that when Jesus curses the fig tree, mm. it was not even supposed to be in season of figs, right? Right. Right. And so Troubling. why? 
So why 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 did Jesus curse something that wasn't even natural to be? That's a good point. What are your thoughts on that? Is that is that a question that you have in your brain? Or is that something for... I think it's the first thing that you need to stumble on when you look at this passage mm-hmm. that's more than uh-huh. just Jesus was hungry. Mm. Right. Right. So, and then the next, the next scene is Jesus in the temple. And so everything looks like it's ready to go. Everything looks good, but mm-hmm. there's no, there's no fruit being produced. No fruit. Well, when I, I was just looking up because I remember, I remember studying this um, and I thought of what a seminary professor that I had said once about it. Um, New Testament professor who I won't give the name, but he is an amazing, he was very fair and said a lot around scripture. He was not afraid um, to talk about, talk about scripture. Let me fix my audio. There we go. Um, From far away, he noticed a fig tree. So he went to see if it could find, he could find anything on it. So it wasn't a fig season. When he came to it, he found nothing except leaves since it wasn't the season for figs. So he said to it, no one will eat of your fruit again. So this is the, what, what my professor um, said was his last name was Albright. Uh, I'll just give the name. Um, Pretty popular guy. He said that, uh, this shows the humanness of Jesus, mm. and it's because he was Jesus, hungry and cranky. Because he he and he treated the treated the tree unfair. Mm. Had too high of expectations and didn't match him. Uh-huh. Right. Mm. Yeah. So this is the full humanity of of Christ where he's basically susceptible to irritation and frustration. Mm-hmm. Not going to say sin, <laughs> but, right. but irritated and frustrated. But, but I, I would say it's uh, impatience. I guess he would have an impatience. Any thoughts on that? Cause that's super controversial. I, I thought it was controversial when it was first said to me, Jesus has to be per- like Jesus is a perfect person. So mm-hmm. how could he be impatient and frustrated with an I uncooperative think, fig tree? Um, <laughs> I think there's probably a deeper meaning to this story and why it was included. Like, I don't think, uh-huh. you know, Mark set out to include all of these stories and oh, I'd better make sure everybody knows Jesus is human kind of thing. So I think it has to do with the facets of the gem. Like it's a nice, it's a nice lens to look through, but it's not the only thing that's going on here. Mm. So what is the other things going on here? I agree with Jake that we have this, um, 
the the next section there is is going into the temple and everything looks like it should but you can't find any fruit Mm. um which really makes jesus statement um what is it no one will ever again eat your fruit like that's that's a pretty condemning statement for the temple right do you think that's an allusion to 72 is 72 the fall of the temple is that what we're talking Uh about yeah, destruction yeah. of the temple. Um, uh, does one of the other Gospels put those together? The fig tree and the stones not being rebuilt? I'd have to look it up. No, that right. was the Jerusalem, how a, a gathering of a hen. Gathering you under my wings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. The I, I mean, the... the The literal reading of it would be that Jesus was just ticked they couldn't eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think that it that would be unfair, I think, to the writer to put that in such simplistic of terms. Mm-hmm. But I would also push back to say that I think Jesus showed his humanity more than just here. And... Well, the reason why I brought that up is is what Albright would say is now we have him entering the temple doing something. Yeah. That also shows humanity. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I was so gonna a say, progression of humanity. The anger also, of Jesus comes out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't love that human weakness is the only thing that shows Jesus' humanity. Mm. You know? Like when Jesus is compassionate, does that show Jesus's humanity too? Oh, I, absolutely. I think so. I, I think that that that's the humanity that we often see but don't incorporate into our lives. Mm. So we so we see compassion and love and uh, loving your neighbor and feeding the five thousand and healing the sick. That that would be more godlike, but even paying attention to the sick, that's a compassion, empathy, sympathy that we know we're supposed to have. And we, we see it in Christ and we know that's fully his humanity. We're looking at um, his friend and his friend dies and he cries. Mm-hmm. Right. So we see that compassion. Oh, look at how, you know, Jesus loved this person so much. Um, but oftentimes, and, and of course, we don't incorporate that in, in our life because that's too difficult, right? <laughs> Compassion, empathy, and, and sympathy is too difficult to incorporate. What's easy to incorporate is anger, frustration. I'm hungry and I can't eat figs. Turning over tables because I'm mad at, you know, whoever trees so 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 i I, so i that's easy to incorporate in my life but it's hard to see that in jesus because in ourselves when we get angry there's an automatic uh translation to shame when i'm frustrated in my christianity i'm not allowed to be angry i'm not allowed to be frustrated i'm not allowed allowed. so so that's hard to see you easy to incorporate it hard to see Jesus in that. 
We have to be careful not to put emotion as sin, though. Mm-hmm. 100%. And even, I mean, we've, we try to make Jesus sinless, and so we call his anger righteous anger. Right. And, but our anger... Rarely is. Rarely Unless is. Unless I know I'm right. Yeah, which I think is abusive. Um My question, though, is like, if Jesus was f- fully human, he had extreme emotions, extreme reactions, mm-hmm. and to be sinless doesn't actually mean that he wasn't angry or without. Yeah, I think you gotta be careful with the word sin. Well, that's why I said I'm not calling it sin. Yeah. Because it says in your anger, do not sin, but it doesn't call anger sin. So I think that, I think what Albright was saying in this passage, Mm -hmm. uh, when he brought that up, we're talking years and years ago, um, he was a very make it plain type of person. And, you know, even like in Genesis, the proto-evangelium, he's like, that's just you know, animals turning against humans right there. That's, there's nothing more to that Genesis where, you know, the Christ Christophany or the, the Christ Christ evangelium that's, that's in Genesis that people say that's the first picture of Christ. He's like, that's not a picture of Christ. That's just humans and animals turning against each other, which was a normal, you know, thing or the naked person in Mark. You know, it's like, okay, why is that there? It's probably the author writing in the naked person is himself, you know, that's like, hey, I'm naked. And how do you get attention? You streak, you know, you streak in the stadium. That's how you get lots of attention. Um, so, so, so this passage might be one of those things. That's all he was saying is there might not be a greater understanding to this. It might just be Jesus was mad because he showed up at McDonald's at two o'clock and they stopped serving hamburgers. So, so it could be as simple as that, or it could be the precursor to show that Jesus is actually human and can show this kind of emotion Mm -hmm. because we're about ready to see a whole hell of a lot of it here in the temple. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I'm noodling. That's actually like it's mm-hmm. that that would be where I'm conjecturing. I'm yeah, yeah, conjecturing there, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's fine. We can move to the temple if you want to. Please. So Jesus walks in the temple, overturns tables. In other scenes he has a whip. Right? He sits down and makes a whip. Braids his own whip. Does he braise the whip in this one? No. No, sad. But I really like that detail. That's premeditated. (laughs) Premeditated anger. (laughs) (laughs) We've tried to make a case all the way through that Mark is a retelling of Exodus. Mm -hmm. And to be against empire, the exchange of money, 
because whose whose face was on the money that was being traded, right? Was was Caesar. Mm-hmm. And so with within the temple of a place that everyone was supposed to be equal, that you have you have the commerce which makes people in order for commerce to happen, there has to be a party taken from. Somebody has to be at disadvantage. And so I think that is that's the system that Jesus was thwarting. Um, was empire was the um, the making people lesser? Mm. And there's 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 the righteous anger. So is there is there righteous or unrighteous anger? No. I don't think so. I don't think so. They call that righteous indignation, you know, righteous anger, righteous fury. I don't think, I think you, it's just yeah. fury. It's just anger. It's just upsetness. What we do with it matters, but right. anger is a, a deep part of our limbic system. And so how do you, how do you step out of being that primal? You can't. I think that that right. has... No. In this scripture in 15, what I really like about this passage in Mark in 15, they came into Jerusalem after entering the temple. Is this the first time he went to the... No, no, no. After entering the temple, he threw out those who were selling and buying there. Right here. He pushed over the tables used for currency exchange and chairs of those who sold doves. So the grain offerings and the dove offerings, the dove offerings uh, were the offerings for poor people. Mm -hmm. And so right there in Mark, Jake, to your point, somebody has to be taken from, what they would do is sell those at a premium to try to get as much out of poor people as possible. So the doves represent the poor um, offering. And the money exchange, I don't know if you've ever been to a foreign country and tried to exchange money not in a bank, but like on the street. So you'll have money exchangers on the street um, when you go to, let's say, an industrialized third world or third world situation, second world. You'll find uh, money changers not in banks. (laughs) Uh, You'll find them on the street. And so you'll give them, you know, your $20 American currency and they'll charge you, you know, $5 to exchange, you know, your bills. So, so it's a complete ripoff for currency exchange. Um, that, that has gone on for millennia. That has been a racket for millennia. So whether it be a tax collector, whether it be a money changer, those two, uh, like those two ideas within that one passage mm-hmm. um, proves your point, Jake. Yeah, they would just in context. They would they would bring Roman coins in and exchange them for temple coins, temple mm-hmm. currency, mm-hmm. and it's it's currency that can only be spent in in the temple. 
on these offerings on this on dove offerings. offering yeah mm-hmm. so they would charge yeah. high for the doves they would charge high for the, the exchange right exactly so when somebody says well jesus turned over temples i mean turned over tables in the temple and they just kind of throw that out there mm-hmm. uh a lot of times they're using that as an excuse to show anger towards other systems. Like, for example, it's usually in the opposite. So we're not trying to throw over the tables. Uh, when somebody says that, they're not trying to throw overthrow the tables of, of the, oppression. Of oppression. They're trying to overthrow the tables of don't take my stuff away. You know, like you're you're taking my stuff away, so therefore I'm going to flip your tables, um, or just as an excuse for their anger. I don't, I don't think this pass, passage gives us excuse for anger. It gives us the excuse to fight the good fight, I guess, of oppression and try to mm-hmm. replace oppression with equity and equality. That's great. Yeah, I think there's an idea of justification there that if you if you feel like you have to justify your actions taken in anger, then maybe it's a good idea to pause and ask why. Right. Right. Yeah, because I mean, none of us are Jesus and none of us are like flipping tables of oppression usually during our days. Right. We're just. When something I, if you is go back right, to the you don't have to you... justify it. Right. I I would say it's I would say that most of my anger is because I'm <laughs> pissed at the fig tree not producing fruit. If that's right. if that's the simple translation, if I just look at that as a simple <laughs> translation, that's where most of my anger lies is I'm at McDonald's and they stopped selling hamburgers at two PM. Uh versus you know flipping tables of oppression over i i think that we spend more time at the you know i'm hungry at the fig tree for whatever metaphor that translates into our life i'm not getting what i want well anything else on that passage i think that uh that brings us to actually close to close we probably have to wrap this up any other thoughts Uh, I mean, I'm a little curious about the last verse there. When it was evening, Jesus and his disciples went outside the city. Why'd they go outside of the city? What's going on there? Hmm. Safer. Definitely safer for them. Because at the two verses up, it's they're trying to figure out how to destroy Jesus. Right? Mm. Okay. So if he was outside the city, then there's less opportunity for... (laughs) So this is one where there is really a simple explanation. Why not? Well, I mean, it could have been... Cheaper? (laughs) But not necessarily safer. I mean, outside the city walls would have been... Well, you have the... the, uh, What was it? The the temple... Mm Mm-hmm priests and mm-hmm. yeah we're, we're trying to figure out how to kill him basically right 
Yeah, I don't have anything to add to that besides just to get out of the way from people's. I mean, honestly, they just went in and flipped over tables. They just, you know, created a potential for a riot uh, right in the middle of what's supposed to be a sacred. Right. Like moment. Um, it reminds me of the king's coronation. Right. And the king's coronation We'll close with this. I watched part of that and I was just like, okay, like why, like why do we do this? I understand tradition. I understand pomp and circumstance. I don't understand that much tradition and that much pomp and circumstance. I just want to live just more of a normal life, you know? <laughs> like I don't need, I don't need every detail the brooch, the earrings, the the collars, the the amount of like lettering here and you know such you know this represents the queen and I mean just all this stuff and I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like, do we actually spend our time thinking about this kind of stuff when like so many people are are starving to death and have disease? That are totally curable, but we're just not spending our time doing it. Well, I mean, you could say that they're the reason people are starving to death. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Right. Let them eat cake. You know, like, I just sit there and I let them eat bread, you know, brioche. So I, I just, I just like, I looked at that and went, that is, for those of you who are listening that really got into that and really loved that, I just want you to just take an internal, like, you know, just assessment like why why do we love such things it speaks power we don't have it speaks money we don't have it speaks what's the opulence what is that word like this this like just fa yeah. fanfare and pride that we don't have we're like we're like watching somebody else's reality tv show of them doing really well and we actually think that we're doing well because they're doing well i mean that's actually what i thought when like all these people are watching the king's coronation from the streets of england and they actually thought that they were doing well because this family's doing well i just i just thought wow okay it was just beyond me so you had military you had processions you had like all this pomp and circumstance horses and carriages and gold and jewels and the crown and and like and then you had the priest actually like coronating setting this person apart like a co-redemptrix to Christ yeah. and God. Yeah. And I'm just like, what? This person doesn't even believe in God. This person actually is in, in a, a vocal, like not necessarily atheist, but definitely agnostic, more humanist than anything. And so I'm sitting there going, okay, so now this person is the head of the church. It totally reminds me of this. It totally reminds me of the procession and like the Roman army and the whole like celebration of Passover and all this kind of stuff and and all the pomp and circus. Like, can you imagine the priests out there? They got their little, you know, 
here's our little, you know, uh, initials on their cloaks. And we got these big hats, you know, like these cone hats and like all these jewels and the earrings are perfect. And, and we're like, we're like going into this big celebration. Right. And so like we've geared up, we've geared up for the show. I mean, our, our concession stands are full of doves. We got to get back stock because there's going to be about 200,000 people here and we got to get some grain and some, you know, perfect lambs and stuff to sell off to the side. And you got the black market, you know, the dark market over here that, you know, is selling everything illegally too. And so all this stuff is going on and, and Jesus comes in and he just disrupt. Could you imagine this happening during the King's coronation where somebody just walks into the middle of that church and just flips their crazy on this place and starts tossing tables and go just yelling out, you know, you den of thieves. <laughs> I just thought of that. And I just thought, wow, that is a perfect example of this where just somebody walks into something that formal and that just total like fanfare and, and, over the top and somebody just starts flipping everybody's tables over and calling them robbers. And I just thought that was a funny, funny connection because we really don't, we really don't have anything that's close to us. We really don't have anything like this um, in our modern society besides maybe the I guess the presidential inauguration or the Super Bowl or something. We don't have anything like this that is this much like like ceremony. dress dress code and ceremony. There's really nothing nothing that we have. So uh so I just thought, wow, what would happen if somebody was just dropped into the king's coronation and did this? I after if I did that, if I walked in and would I did that, would you watch the coronation at that point? No, I would oh. I would actually leave the city. <laughs> I would I would grab the two of you. If you made it that far. <laughs> yeah. I'd grab the two of you and we would we would bolt it down to Newburgh or Wilsonville or something. We'd be so out of there. We'd be like, I'm gone. Anyway, with that, good night everybody. Thanks for joining We're us. We're gone. <laughs> Take care. <laughs>